welcome back to yet another episode of the Josias Podcast. This week, we're uh, just the three of us again, and we're going to be having a sort of casual conversation about teleology, the Enlightenment view of nature, and how the Enlightenment view of nature affected the world we live in today. Uh, Before we start, Elliot, would you like to tell us a little bit about that bizarre music we just heard? Uh, Sure. So uh, that wonderful music that we just heard (laughs) was from uh, the soundtrack to Godfrey Reggio's film, Koyanis Katsi. Um, And it was, it's written by Philip Glass, as you may have been able to tell if you've heard any Philip Glass music before, it's kind of distinctive. Um, So this piece of music, um, the movie, by the way, is, is definitely worth seeing. Koyanis Katsi. What's that mean? Uh, it means life out of balance. It's it's Hopi, uh, which is an American Indian language. Um, and uh, the the film is all about um, the mechanization of modern life, really. And uh, it's it it strikes a balance, I guess, or maybe it doesn't strike a balance. It, <laughs> It strikes a, a very despairing note about the, the dehumanization of people in uh, industrial and post-industrial urban life. It's kind of an so, experimental film, though, right? Oh, very experimental. I mean, I think that I think it holds up. Uh, Reggio made two sequels, which were also scored by Philip Glass, um, and they're less great. Uh, but the the original is brilliant. Um, but it's all it, like kind of a montage, right? Without it's, words, it's a series it's just... of montages. Um, a lot of them are some of them are in, them are in slow mo. Uh, some of them are time lapse shots. A lot of time lapse shots, actually. And he uses the the visible rhythm that, that emerges in different commonplace settings in cities. Uh, when you when you can uh, contract the the span of time to uh, to build the music key being Philip Glass, so uh, the grid which we just heard is uh, played over a montage of uh, factory scenes um, and scenes of commuters uh, going through train stations. You can see uh, you know ketchup packets being made and. <laughs> Uh, cars being raised and lowered and showers of sparks and factories and you see a huge Lockheed Martin factory and masses of people emerging from it for their lunch breaks, things like this. It's amazing. Uh, just uh, so the, the music I think captures, um, both the, the, the rhythm of that, uh, reality, um, you know, day in, day out. Uh, press this button, uh, lower this lever, that sort of thing. Um, but also, it, it makes it feel alive because the reality is that, you know, as much as uh, neo luddites love to hate on the modern world, and, and I've I've definitely been one of them many times, um, it's still people living in these contexts, and people have found ways to to live, and so there's a lot of humanity compressed into these right. scenes. Um, it it reminded I, me when I was looking at it, uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched uh, uh, a good chunk of it last night when you said you were going to use uh, Philip Glass as my heart 
sank into my stomach. <laughs> uh, but it reminded me of, of the wonderful uh, French film Playtime, which also has almost no dialogue. It's, it's a more conventional film for sure, though, uh, because you are following a, a, a semi-protagonist through sort of this modern urban uh, 60s hellscape that, that is modern Paris. Mm-hmm. And and how dehumanizing modern structures can be, but there's sort of some joyful notes hidden there about you know people still are human and people are still living and even if even if you're living in a concrete and steel and glass box, you're still trying to connect with other people in a way. Right. Yeah. I, I mean that. Just to go back even further, um, I think of uh, Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin film, right. yeah. which is hilarious and delightful and moving. And it's and very it's much in the film. same same exactly. vein, uh, because same vein. Tati is a, uh, it's almost a silent film with music, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That so anyway, note, that's the music. <laughs> on that note, uh, Pat Ehrman, why don't you start us out with uh, uh, sort of explain I, I mentioned it briefly but explain sort of the topic we're talking about today okay so i thought i would i would begin by reading uh a quote out loud actually which uh i've hardly ever done here on the podcast i've been able to explain myself <laughs> till now <laughs> but however it is your main way of, of writing your blog <laughs> <laughs> I, I write mostly in blog quotes <laughs> so this is a quote from Leo Strauss, the uh, uh, German-Jewish political philosopher who taught for many years in the U.S. This is from his book, Natural Right and History. Um, And so this kind of ties today's topic to the topic of our uh, our last podcast on rights. So Strauss writes as follows. The issue of natural right presents itself today as a matter of party allegiance. Looking around us, we see two hostile camps, heavily fortified and strictly guarded. One is occupied by the liberals of various descriptions, the other by the Catholic and non-Catholic disciples of Thomas Aquinas. But both armies, and in addition those who prefer to sit on the fences or hide their heads in the sand, are to heap metaphor on metaphor in the same boat. They are all modern men. We all are in the grip of the same difficulty. Natural right in its classic form is connected with a teleological view of the universe. All natural beings have a natural end, a natural destiny, which determines what kind of operation is good for them. In the case of man, reason is required for discerning these operations. Reason determines what is by nature right, with ultimate regard to man's natural end. The teleological view of the universe, of which the teleological view of man forms a part, would seem to have been destroyed by modern natural science. From the point of view of Aristotle, and who could dare to claim to be a better judge in this matter than Aristotle, the issue between the mechanical and the teleological conception of the universe is decided by the manner in which the problem of the heavens, the heavenly bodies, and their motion is solved. Now, in this respect, 
which from Aristotle's own point of view was the decisive one, the issue seems to have been decided in favor of the non-teleological conception of the universe. Two opposite conclusions could be drawn from this momentous decision. According to one, the non-teleological conception of the universe must be followed up by a non-teleological conception of human life. But this naturalistic solution is exposed to grave difficulties. It seems to be impossible to give an adequate account of human ends by conceiving of them merely as posited by desires or impulses. Therefore, the alternative solution has prevailed. This means that people were forced to accept a fundamental, typically modern dualism of a non-teleological natural science and a teleological science of man. This is the position which the modern followers of Thomas Aquinas, among others, are forced to take, a position which presupposes a break with the comprehensive view of Aristotle, as well as that of Thomas Aquinas himself. The fundamental dilemma in whose grip we are is caused by the victory of modern natural science. An adequate solution to the problem of natural right cannot be found before this basic problem has been solved. There's uh, that long quote from from Strauss. Um, and I thought this was a good way of introducing the topic because uh, in a way I would see our project as being in one of the two camps that he marks out at the beginning, namely in the camp of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, at the Josias, we um, try to explain and defend uh, St. Thomas's teaching on, um, on natural right and on what's good for human beings based on their natural end, what their natural order to what they're naturally ordered to. But as Strauss shows, this whole uh, classical and Thomistic conception is uh, challenged by um, the, apparent, uh, the apparent conclusion of natural science, namely that uh, nature does not act for an end, and therefore neither does human nature. Yes. And uh, it's, it's interesting the way he describes the two camps because he says that most people follow a teleological conception of uh, the sort of moral realm, and then on the natural realm, they don't. Which I'm not sure, I mean, maybe people do that sort of uh, uh, unconsciously, but I'm not sure it's really true of the... uh, most modern philosophers who who think about these things. And then the other thing he says is that the modern camps, uh, you either get the complete nihilists or you get the people who are at least given up on classical philosophy in the natural realm, as if there was no one left defending uh, teleology and nature. And there are a few left, Right. There, uh, at, here at the Josias, although we don't tend to write about nature, it, uh, I think the, it's fair to say the classical view of teleology is uh, something we all hold. Mm-hmm. And it gets rejected in the Enlightenment time. 
so maybe we should maybe we should turn to that unless you well i i there's one thing that really strikes me about the Strauss quote um and it's the reduction to uh the question about the movement of the heavenly bodies oh yeah and i think that's that's so right <laughs> i mean uh i you can you can reduce the whole problem to this idea of um proper places and uh, principles of, of motion among uh, inanimate bodies, basically. So if, if the stars have fixed paths, um, or if, uh, you know, if the moon's uh, movements are governed by uh, a certain innate tendency in itself, then all sorts of other things follow, um, at least intuitively. So, and it's, it's the, it's kind of the horizon for human life, right? Um, the, the stars are, they surround us basically, the heavenly bodies surround us. Both Plato and Aristotle say in, in different places that philosophy begins with wonder and wonder, they, they both, I think, uh, say it outright, wonder primarily about the stars. They mm-hmm. seem to think that that's the natural point. I would push back there. I would say... I don't think Aristotle's notion of finality and causes comes primarily from the stars. I think he thinks the stars, because they've been observed for so long and they're so regular, Mm -hmm. uh, I think he thinks that they're another example of it. But even Aristotle, who's much more confident about uh, how how concrete his science can get and and, – uh, who's much more confident about sort of the uh, more empirical side of Aristotelian science than any of his modern followers can be. Even he will say that his cosmology is contingent, that it's not uh, necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, it, um, Aristotle doesn't begin his consideration of, of natural teleology with the stars. Right. He begins... no with sublunary uh, substances. But right. when he arrives at that question, um, I think Strauss is right that finally he does see uh, that question as decisive also for the demonstrative uh, character of the arguments he's given for teleology before. So that if the whole of the universe were... Um, not ordered to the good, but we're, we're random, then um, it would not make sense for some part of it to be ordered to the good. That is, it would right. be strange if the whole universe were this random, uh, you know, vortex uh, of chaos, um, the way the Democritus and the atomists see it, but plants and trees and animals were, were ordered to the good. That would be a strange yeah. Uh, position he says but finally first he looks at first he looks at plants and animals and and human beings to see that there's uh, an order to the good in nature mm-hmm. um, that's where you start in in book two of the physics where he he first uh, argues right. that nature acts for an end but then um, later on when you when you come to the question of the heavens then he does seem to say that uh, Depending on how you answer that, that will cast a shadow back on on his arguments earlier. 
Yes. Uh, and it's interesting to me. So the Enlightenment starts uh, with all these different people rejecting Aristotle in, in, in language that's often more uh, vitriolic than uh, uh, demonstrative. Mm-hmm. But they also start, none of them think that the heavens aren't a sign of the existence of God. I shouldn't say none of them. There, there, there might be a few. But for instance, if you look at Descartes, if you look at Newton, if you look at even, even in a sense at Kant, they all think... Yeah, yeah the early Kant. Yeah, the early yeah. Kant. Yeah. Uh, although it's... it's it, it's interesting with the later Kant, and, and I'm not an expert, and it's been, oh, geez, is it 13 years now since I read Kant? <laughs> seriously. But uh, they all think, particularly Newton, it's very clear in Newton, and he gives the, he gives the sort of uh, natural science. Kant accepts him more or less, I think. Right. Uh, they think that the heavens are ordered and that you can look at it and see that there's an order in the heavens. But they've changed what they mean by order. For Newton, it's a very accidental order. You see that the forces were all arranged in a very nice way in this sort of Newtonian space, this, this lattice work that he's made out of space and time. Uh, and it's all ordered so nicely that you end up thinking, oh, there must be a God. Right. And this, this is what... To the, to the bodies. Hmm? It's it's external to the actual heavenly bodies. That is. That's right. That's right. Uh, Because his science is mechanistic at the end of the day. So, uh, you uh, for for Newton, he still thinks everything is very ordered. But then, if you go further, and your cosmology starts saying that, wait a second, uh, things are much messier the Newton thought, and all you have is some sort of external sense of causality, some sort of mechanistic system, you're going to very quickly stop thinking of cos- of cosmology as a great demonstration of this uh, all-powerful creator. Right. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, there's another aspect of that, too. I remember reading somewhere that, or may- maybe it was just an anecdote from a professor, that Hegel somewhere says that, uh, it was necessary that there be exactly seven planets, uh, and that this is rationally demonstrable, or something like that, <laughs> right? And um, oh, Hegel, so, oh, Hegel, and and you know, and then uh, you know, Neptune was, was uh, discovered or something. Uh, uh, so, but there's a the the sense of the contingency of the heavenly bodies increases the more we we actually observe them um so you know uh i i've been an avid follower of the the juno space probe um that that uh reached (laughs) jupiter a little over what a year and a half ago i think and um you know we all grew up seeing these hubble images of of Jupiter with the great red spot it has a very identifiable color pattern and all of this. And then suddenly this year, we've gotten all of these images of this very strange, chaotic uh, ball of swirling gas that looks so different from anything I grew up seeing. Um, and you realize, oh, well, there are dozens and dozens of these 
There's space junk moons flowing or floating around Jupiter, and same is true with Saturn. And it's all very cold and alien and dead and inhospitable. And it just doesn't sound like evidence of of a well ordered universe. You know, the the orbits are elliptical. They're kind of randomly spaced.、Um, They're more easily explained by、uh, theories of of、um, stellar genesis than than by any sort of rational principle.、Um, it it's all it it kind of militates against、uh, a teleological view of the cosmos. Right. So, maybe, so what do you do with that? <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should look now、uh, look now at Aristotle's. Actual arguments for、uh-huh. for teleology, and then、uh, look at the whether this、um, the, the tremendous new amount of evidence that we have、um, with things like space probes and so on, whether that actually refutes his arguments or not.、Mm-hmm. So Aristotle first gives this;、uh, he just sets out the four causes, right?、Mm-hmm. In the physics, he doesn't really present uh, uh, a demonstrative argument, and nor should we expect him to, because when you're dealing with any sort of science, obviously you have you have to have first principles, and those first well, principles don't have an argument, because then you would never have anywhere to start. Right, and I, it doesn't particularly make sense to to try and demonstrate that there are four causes, because. The, the the causes aren't aren't、um, they're not like they're the four essential attributes of things. They're、uh, four ways of identifying、uh, what is, right?、Um, and they happen to grasp something about what is that's very important. Each of them, but there could be more than four causes. I mean, during 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 the、uh, scholastic period, people have all had all kinds of extra causes, right? So it's it's not essential that there be four, or that they be called this. Right. It's not. He's not demonstrating the、uh, properties of something, as you said, but he's looking at the ways in which you can give an explanation for something. Ways in which you can answer the question why. So、mm-hmm. you look.、Um, we begin.、Uh, Our contact with the world, with、uh, with sense knowledge, we sense, we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and so on.、Uh, and this gives us an immediate contact with the world and a very certain knowledge of the world. But、um, it gives us a, a kind of confused knowledge of the world that is many different.、Uh, Things about the world are contained in that knowledge, but they're not distinct and explained. And when we start wondering about the things that we know,、um, that wonder、um, takes the form of asking why things are this way or that way. What's behind it? What depends on what does it depend? We see、um, motion above all. We see things burning down, and、uh, you know, there's a big.、Uh, Forest fire near where my brother is studying in California. This is why <laughs> this example occurs to me. Right, you see fire, 
and things uh, burning up and destroying. And then you wonder about why. Why do things burn up? What's what's behind it? What does that uh, burning up depend on? And that makes you think the seeing the in- instability of it would then also make you think, well, what uh, what makes it what makes the house stand up when it's not burning down? What's what's behind the stability of the thing? So you start asking, uh, what is um, what is the reason for things uh, being the way they are or changing? Change is what above all attracts the um, attention of the mind, and that's what it means to ask for the cause, because the cause is um, that on which something depends for its being or for its motion for its change. Yeah, um, and there's a sense in which uh, whenever you see, when you're talking about cause, really what you're asking is why. Right. And and Eliot's right, the four causes, it's not so much about four. I mean, Aristotle himself gives more than four. He gives right after the four causes, he gives luck and chance, which are also causes of a sort. Uh, of a sort, yeah. And they are, in fact, the competitors, right? That's the the other view, uh, without getting into Aristotle's sort of technical distinction between luck and chance. You're either going to have teleology or you're going to have some sort of random. The answer will be it's random, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Aristotle starts at a very different place. And I, I remember there's a... Uh, a uh, teacher of mine and of Potter Edmonds, uh, who used to say that uh, philosophers disagree because they have different starting places. The, the Where you start will end up sort of uh, uh, determining whether you're going to go one direction or another. And Aristotle starts by looking at motion to include all sorts of motion, to include animal motion, to include growth, to include uh, qualitative changes, and also to include locomotion. Uh, The moderns very typically start by mathematically modeling motion. They don't even ask, what is it? Uh, Descartes gives a, a definition which ends up just being saying, moving in different words. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's not really, he doesn't really even define it. And uh, I don't think Newton even thinks it's worth asking. I think he thinks motion is, you just, it's just obvious. Let's, let's get right to the math. And the reason, the reason I'm talking about motion here is because the four causes are, at least in our knowledge of them, primarily ways of explaining why things change. And why things move. Right. That's where So if you start with math, start when one of the features of math is that ancient or modern, math does not have final cause. You don't say uh what's the uh purpose? You don't ask that question. It's abstracted from that. It's it's just looking at quantity. So if you start with that, you're never going to get final cause as you go along. It shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise you that you don't see it as you go along. Yeah, I, I just want to uh, qualify that a little bit. So, um, I think uh, the, the the idea of teleology isn't isn't just about 
purpose in, in the sense of intention. It's, it's about rest. Uh, what, what the, why, why does this thing come to rest? Uh, why does it find a sort of fulfillment uh, in this state? Um, so you can still have that even, even in a purely mechanical um, conception of, a, of, a, uh, of the universe. I mean, you can still have states of rest. Uh, but interestingly, Newton, Newton defines yeah. as a motion as itself, insofar as he defines it. For Newton, motion and rest aren't really different. And then you really see that with Einstein. That's, that's very explicit, right? Well, yeah, but then, then we're falling into an equivocation. Um, because for, for Newton, uh, motion is, is locomotion. It's a change in place. But for Aristotle, uh, motion is the reduction of potency to act. So uh, in, in a Newtonian conception of things, something can be changing place without really changing at all. Right. Um, right. Inertial motion doesn't involve any change in the thing itself. And so, I mean, that, that's wonky, you know, it's crazy, it's, it requires some, some rethinking of, of what place is and how it, it relates to what things are, but uh, it, it, it becomes different. I mean, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a little risky to, to, to mix those terms. Yeah, but I think, I, I think, I think you, but you, you can still have rest. And so... My feeling is that if, if you're going to, we're going to sort of re-inject uh, teleology into a modern scientific view of things, um, it, it, we need to, to do a critical re-examination of what, what final causation is. Uh, is it just, is it intention? I think ultimately it is intention, um, but that my understanding of that comes uh, by way of a sort of uh, theological uh, view of things. It, it, it's, it's informed by faith. Um, the, in terms of... The Kantian to the last. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, in, in terms of the natural observation of things, I don't find it evident uh, immediately that there is intention in governing their resting points and fulfillments, uh, that, you know, where they stop in their motion. Uh, you know, you can see it in living things, but not easily in the universe at large. I think that's right. And I think you are right to look at rest. So I'll push back from a more Aristotelian, an, uh, an unreconstructed Aristotelian, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. position. Uh, I think you're right. Final cause is ultimately about rest because final cause is the good that is being sought. It's uh, and obviously moderns would be very uncomfortable with the language of good here, particularly in nature, because we think of everything as so random. Once you get to evolution, uh, uh, as it's, as it's presented by the, uh, Darwinists, then everything, even life you've reduced to nature uh, to, uh, uh, chance. Right. But Aristotle starts by setting up a choice. He's, he's either things have purpose or they're by chance. And then he turns uh, to look at necessity. Uh, and I think 
all you need, I think that that's right. I think if you uh, look at, particularly if you allow living things to be an example uh, of motion as well, and, and, and living things using motion to do things. But even if you just look at other things that happen by necessity, they're happening for an end. Well, yeah, that, let's backtrack a little bit. Because, um, okay. uh, Joel, you were saying before that um, that the modern approach begins with um, begins at a very abstract level, at the level of mathematics, which right. I mean, excludes final causality in some way. And Elliot was pointing out that's not necessarily true. Um, I think insofar as, as the consideration is purely mathematical, it is true. But the basic point, I think, is the starting point is um, the starting point is an abstract one. You're beginning with already a technical discussion. Whereas when Aristotle begins the consideration of the four causes, he's looking um, at the most basic and primary experience that we have of the world around us and our experience of trying to explain it, of, of trying to answer the question why. And um, in this experience, we see he gives examples of how we explained to show that there are four different ways that we explain. And it's right that later you'll introduce a lot of other kinds of causes, but they'll all be reducible to these four. Um, and so you have the what something is made out of, the material cause. Um, you know, what does this, uh, this statue depend on? It depends on the bronze that it's made of. Then you have the, the form uh, that makes that material um, into what it is. It's the form of, you know, whoever the statue is of. And then you have um, an, an agent. This is also an answer to the question, you know, why is there the statue? There's some sculptor who has put that form into the matter. Um, and then we also say, think we have answered the question why, he says. Um, and above all, when uh, we give the reason why he does something. So why, does, why did the agent put the form into the matter? He wanted whatever it was that he wanted to glorify whoever he was making the statue of or whatever. Or the, the example that Aristotle gives there um, in the physics is walking. Why did he walk? He walked because he wanted to be healthy. So you have there uh, a kind of primal um, experience of the four causes. And then you, when you begin to um, apply this to the question of natural things, um, you see that in natural things, there is, as you were saying, not only motion, but also resting. There's a coming to some resting point. Uh, an animal grows, but it doesn't grow to infinite size. It grows to the size that is suitable for it, uh, given its um, nature, given in nature there in the sense of, uh, not in the first sense of nature, but in the sense of essence, given its role in the ecosystem, we could say. It needs to have a certain size, so it grows to that size and then it stops. Or you see other 
processes it it heats up for example um, until it reaches the right temperature and then stops so you come to some rest and you can see apart from um, apart from any question yet of whether it's uh, it's really ordered to a good in living things especially you can see that they do reach something that is good for them whether or not that's by chance or by uh, uh, per se teleological order, you can say for the animal, it's good to reach the certain size. It's good for it to run away from the predator and escape. Even if that's only, uh, so abstracting from the question of whether that motion to the good is um, accidental or uh, really teleological. And, and to build on that point, you see that it moves towards something that is good for it, not uh, uh, just occasionally. Right. So it, it's not like you – you, yeah. yeah, it's not like, okay, well, one out of a billion plants. times. You see it in plants. They do it over and over again. Right. You see it in, in animals as well. Uh, so you, And even uh, you see – this sort of uh, necessity in non-animate things. Stones act a certain way. They really act a certain way, right? They always well, are. Yeah, but toward what? There, it's more difficult to see that it achieves something that's good. In the, right. The point, the point I was making is that... Uh, the resting place is something good for it. Whereas in the film, right. where, um, you know that by a kind of analogy, if you know it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so my point was... Uh, as you get less animate necessity, and even if there's some probabilistic things going on at some level, there is repetition so that you can give laws of nature, for instance. Uh, the necessity is very clear. Uh, where if there's a good, that's not as clear. But as you move towards more animate things and the more complex uh, it is, uh, the more you can see acting for a good, although perhaps the necessity is slightly less clear. Right. So, so, okay. Well, let me try and, um, rehash, see if, see if I get this. Um, so you, what, what you guys are saying is that we, we begin our knowledge of ends and nature, uh, by observing more perfect things, animate things, um, and, and specifically people and intentions and, and, artifacts you know the the bronze and the statue and all of that it's an artifact which makes it very intelligible because right well someone made it and uh from there we go down through the sort of chain of being and to lower perfections uh to to plants and then to rocks where our understanding of teleology only works or only is only applicable by analogy or through through a, a kind of uh, uh, an assumption. Um, so here's, here's, a here's a kind of a very modern objection to that. How do we know that, uh, so suppose we take a critical look at this, uh, way of, of investigating nature. How do we know that we aren't just, uh, taking what is most familiar to us and, uh, which is an accident. I happen to be a human being. And my human nature happens to inform uh, the the path of discovery that I follow uh, in life. What if I'm just taking that accident and presuming that it uh, actually um, 
describes or, or shows me something essential about the universe, namely the, the order of perfections. Uh, what if perfection is just uh, a veiled way of saying that um, humans are what I know best, and therefore everything that is most human-like is best? Well, one, one way of answering that is this. Uh, so Aristotle talks a lot about proceeding from the more known to the less known. Mm-hmm. Modern science tends to take a different approach or, or claim that it's taking a different approach. Modern science, uh, to speak very generally and uh, sort of vulgarly about modern science, uh, you you tend to start, you think uh, chemistry is more fundamental than biology. Physics is more fundamental than chemistry. Yeah, and but physics that's, ends up being, that's the, explaining everything. That's, uh, that's not in the order of investigation. Um, you know, we, we don't start with, uh, in, in science, it's not like scientists start with subatomic particles and then work up from there. Right. So, so my point is just uh, what we know best, even if it's very confused and hard to say, is also what we're most certain of. Mm-hmm. So it is odd to say that the things you're most certain of, even if you're confused about them, uh, uh, are just, you know, uncertain or chance. Everyone has to start this way. As you pointed out, that was where I was going. Even modern scientists, in fact, start with their own experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems that Aristotle does two things with, with that starting point. That is the extension by analogy from um, from the living things that are most known to us to non-living natural things uh, is not just um, is not just a projection. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for extending that. Um, and well, there are two reasons I would say. The one one reason is uh, it has to do with the way that you the the more distinct way that you come to see the relation between um, the good and the agent cause. So first, you just see there are these different kinds of causes and so on. But the more you you reflect on your experience of them, that is on what you really know of them, in in the most obvious case of living things, the more you see that they're correlative. So um, the agent is not able to uh, act unless um, there is some final cause for his acting. And this is most obvious in uh, what's most known of all to us, which is our own uh, action. You can see right away that a sculptor is the agent who puts a form into the, the matter. He's not going to do that unless he has some end in view. Yeah, right. This oh, yeah. is the uh, he's not going to act. Right. This this is a very good explanation of the sort of mysterious passage where Aristotle talks starts talking about how the posterior is to the prior in a similar way, according to art and according to nature. Which uh, I remember reading and saying, <laughs> "What is he talking about?" But what what I take him to mean is what Potter Edmund just said. And if you know that when you're doing something, if you're making a sculpture, 
the good, the, the, the end result is really what started you acting. Then in nature, we can say the end result, uh, since we see that there's a consistency and we see that things do seem to, to have something that's good for them, we can say that there too, the end result is going to be prior to what was pr- prior in time. Sure. So the bird builds a nest because it's going to raise uh, bir- uh, children, uh, because it's going to have baby birds. Uh, it lays eggs because it wants to have baby birds, because it wants to keep its species alive. Well, even it doesn't- uh, and even though those things are later in time, they're earlier in causation. Right. And even if it doesn't, even if the bird doesn't have any knowledge, so it's the right. intention that's in the bird, mm-hmm. uh, you can see that in reality, the the activity um, is explicable in terms of the rest that will come later on. So that there's a, a dependence of the bird's egg laying on the good of uh, having baby birds later on. Even so, I would do it to the bird. I would, but then the second, one sec, I just wanted to because I said there, yeah, right. the second step, as it were, that sort of supports this, um, that also goes back to that obscure text you were just quoting from Aristotle, <laughs> um, is that if you look at our experience of art and art here taken in the broad Greek sense to include any kind of human uh, making of something, including agriculture and um, all this kinds of medicine, such things. Aristotle spends a long time com- uh, considering art there in those uh, in that discussion of the final cause in nature. And what you see there is that art is totally dependent on nature. That um, in a way, what you're trying to do in art, and this is most clear in things like medicine and agriculture, is to help nature achieve. Um, something that it was, as it were, already striving to achieve. So the the doctor um, helps the the body of the patient to heal itself. He removes obstacles and, and as it were, helps nature over the difficult parts to get to the uh, to the goal in mind. Um, and similarly, in agriculture, you're as it were helping nature to. Um, produce the fruits that it would have produced anyways, but not as not in as much uh, as great quantities or as good quality. Right. And so then the conclusion that he draws from that is if what's, if that, what, if what you're doing in art um, is totally dependent on nature and as you were trying to, um, trying to do what nature is already doing, then it would be unreasonable to think that, uh, Whereas it's clear that in art you you are acting for an end, that the uh, the process, as it were, that art is completely dependent on is not for an end. That is, the primary thing would be random, but then the secondary thing would be uh, teleological. So that's the Aristotelian view, right? And it really does fit well with immediate experiences particularly with sort of the common experience the uh, the the one of the hallmarks of aristotle and thomas aquinas are their common sense mm-hmm. uh where that doesn't mean some sort of uh I, I yeah it doesn't mean like uh uh common sense the way republicans talk about common sense and what they really mean is something like class prejudice 
And I don't mean to pick on Republicans there. Democrats do this too. Uh, uh, politician is all I mean. Uh, but he, what he's doing is taking sort of the common experience everyone has before you even start reflecting. Uh, and uh, then uh, you uh, reflecting on that and trying to get philosophical wisdom out of it. Right. Uh, the starting place, though, as I said, for, for, for the moderns, starting in the Enlightenment, tends to be different. Uh, so Descartes. Well, so, so why don't, why don't we, why don't we wrap up this conversation here and then, uh, we'll be back someday. <laughs> we, what, what, what I'm trying to I say see, is yeah. what, why don't we take a break and then, uh, and then pick part up two. next time with part two, which, uh, which will be what the enlightenment. Yeah, we'll 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 talk about why Aristotle gets rejected, why what they replace him with, and sort of the consequence this will have for post enlightenment philosophy of nature and post enlightenment and enlightenment philosophies of uh, politics and morality. Okay, awesome. See you then. Yeah.